America is back. Diplomacy is back. Well, you know, one minute, one minute, okay. We everywhere, from Lithuania to the Sahel, to Afghanistan, to Iraq, to Lebanon. War and Peace, a podcast by the International Crisis Group. Welcome back to War and Peace, a podcast of the International Crisis Group. I'm your host, Olga Oliker, speaking to you from Brussels. Alyssa Jepson, my co-host, is away this week on leave, something I recommend everyone do periodically. This week, we're going to talk about the Western Balkans. Since the collapse of Yugoslavia, the region remains not exactly where the peacekeepers of the 90s might have hoped it would be. Sluggish economies, uneven progress on democracy, widespread corruption, which might be related to both of these things, remain fundamental problems in pretty much all of the countries of the region. There's not a high risk of armed conflict, but there's a higher risk of armed conflict than we certainly used to think there was as various historical grievances reemerge and nationalist sentiments run high. To talk about all of this, we're joined by Marco Prelitz, who is Crisis Group Senior Consulting Analyst for the Western Balkans and the author of a forthcoming report on the region. Marco has three decades of experience working in the Western Balkans. That is the three decades that have been relevant since the collapse of uh, Yugoslavia. He has also served as an investigator, helping to prosecute atrocities with the International Tribunal in The Hague. Some of you might have heard him speak on our sister podcast, Hold Your Fire, a few months ago. And you also probably heard him on War and Peace when he talked about a previous report that he was the lead author on concerning Serbia and Kosovo. So, Marco, welcome back to War and Peace. Hi, Olya. It's great to be back. So I'm going to ask you a really simple question, which I don't think gets asked often enough. What do we talk about when we talk about the Western Balkans? Which countries do we mean these days? That's a good question. The Western Balkans, it's basically this little basket of countries in Southeastern Europe that's not in the European Union. So it's a negative definition. It's like the leftovers, so to speak. And at some point, someone, maybe it was a European official, decided to tack on this term Western Balkans just to refer to these six countries that want to join the EU but haven't made it yet. And those are in rough order of size, Serbia, the biggest, then Bosnia and Herzegovina, Albania, North Macedonia, Montenegro, and in between there, Kosovo. So that's the six. With Kosovo not quite being a country. Unlike all the rest, Kosovo is uh, what people call partially recognized. So something like half the countries in the world recognize it as an independent country, and the other half don't and consider it legally to be still part of Serbia. Serbia, of course, is one of those countries that considers it still part of Serbia. Within the neighborhood, it's a little bit more lopsided. 22 of the European Union member states recognize independent Kosovo, and five don't. And even those five are kind of wavering, sort of tiptoeing toward recognition. But yeah, there's still a dispute over Kosovo. And you didn't mention Croatia. The point is that you said this is a negative definition countries that aren't in the European Union. So this isn't the former Yugoslavia. These are countries of the former Yugoslavia that aren't now in the European Union. Yeah, plus Albania. Plus Albania, which was not part of Yugoslavia, right. I think they decided to go with Western Balkans instead of just Balkans because Greece is a Balkan country and it's in the EU, of course, and Bulgaria is also, I think the name Balkan comes from a mountain in Bulgaria. So those are, I guess, the Eastern Balkans, although nobody uses that term. 
But it has its own problem because, of course, Croatia and Slovenia are uh, geographically in the Western Balkans and they were part of Yugoslavia and they're part of the EU now. So they're not in this basket. EU membership, not EU membership. That's the defining line between what we're calling the Western Balkans and what we're not. Other than just are you and are you not a member of the EU, does it tell us something about how stable or unstable, how dangerous or not dangerous the political situation in these countries is? I ask because part of the argument was that we promote regional stability in these countries that emerge from the collapse of Yugoslavia by promising them a path to EU membership. Some countries finish that path, some countries haven't. And in fact, honestly, Slovenia and Croatia are the only ones that obtained membership. So are Slovenia and Croatia that much more stable than the others? And is it because they were able to obtain EU membership or were they able to obtain EU membership because they're more stable? Yeah, I think exactly. I think it's the second. And this is not a new thing. I think as far back as you care to go, the EU was never about allowing a country to join as a full member, the only kind of member there is, if it presents some significant risk of internal instability. The only sort of partial exception to that was Cyprus, which was not really unstable, I guess, but still has its own complicated internal dispute with Turkish Republic of North Cyprus. There is now a consensus, and there has been for as long as I've been working on the region, that the EU is not going to do that again. Even Cyprus, ironically, agrees that there will be no more Cypresses joining. Well, they want to be special. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> true, true. So, yeah, you've got to be stable before you get in. And it's basically unthinkable that Croatia or Slovenia would have some kind of internal conflict now in a way that's really not for at least some of the other of uh, the six uh, Western Balkan countries. The other wrinkle here, Alia, is uh, NATO, because some of these countries are in NATO already. Mm-hmm. So Montenegro is and Albania is. And in fact, those are pretty stable, not as stable as the ones that are also in the EU, but pretty stable. So that's kind of an important stepping stone. And North Macedonia, they were frozen out for a long, long time uh, because of their dispute with Greece. Over their name? Over their name, yes. Something that outsiders had probably still have a very difficult time wrapping their head around. So they had to change their name to North Macedonia. They used to be just Macedonia. Yeah, and even having done that, they got into NATO, but not the EU. Not the EU, because now they have a thing with Bulgaria. What's the thing with Bulgaria? The thing with Bulgaria is even more complicated. Apparently, it has to do with national identity. And I might be massacring the subtleties, but from the Bulgarian point of view, Macedonians are sort of a kind of Bulgarian, at least historically speaking, that they're an offshoot of the Bulgarian people. And they would like North Macedonia to in some way acknowledge that. And North Macedonians feel like they don't want someone outside them telling them it's basically an issue of interpretations of history and national identity. Including other people's national identity, which seems to echo other problems, which we'll come back to elsewhere in the broader neighborhood. So do these countries still want to be in the EU? Have they given up after all of these years? I think they mostly do. The one sort of interesting question is Serbia. If you bracket Serbia for a minute, the others all want to be in the EU quite intensely. Speaking about the people that live there, There's not really much dispute about that. So sometimes when you have polls, there's ambivalence in Serbia. My view is that that is driven by things that are not really about the EU itself, but interpretations of their own much more recent history. So it has to do with the war and Russia's invasion of Ukraine and the fact that NATO strenuously bombed Serbia back in 1999 
And therefore, many Serbs still are sore about that, understandably so, and tend to emotionally take the anti-NATO side, right? So they don't want to join NATO, mostly. And the EU and NATO, there's a lot of overlap. And with the EU swing against Russia in the war in Ukraine, that has led to a kind of counter swing in Serbian public opinion, where they're saying, we just sort of feel some sympathy with this other side. And therefore, Mr. Polster, when you ask me if I want to join the EU, I'm going to say no. But the fact is that when they leave the country, they go to the EU to work. And when they leave the country for a holiday, they also go to the EU. And the kind of rule that they want to have in their country is the EU kind, like the good governance, the stable market economy. It's not really the Russian alternative or any other plausible alternative for the most part. So I'm going to say, yeah, they all want to be in the EU. And what is the state of play between Kosovo and Serbia now? We've kind of touched on this a little bit, but last time we talked on War and Peace, things were fairly frozen. Yeah, things had just kind of been put in the freezer when we were talking. There was this moment about two years ago when it looked like there was a window opening through which you could glimpse the two, Pristina and Belgrade, settling their outstanding differences. And that would mean, basically, Serbia coming to terms with the fact that Kosovo was independent. That window has subsequently closed, and it is still closed. The government that's in power in Kosovo today, their identity is not to compromise at all on sovereignty issues in any way, shape, or form. So they are just fundamentally opposed to the idea of negotiating with Serbia about the terms under which Serbia might recognize them. Their view is the negotiation is just Serbia agreeing with us. That's it. It's most people's view of negotiations these days, I find. You think so? I think it's a very common approach to negotiations. Here's my negotiating position. Please agree with it. The other side says, no, no, no. Here's my negotiating position. Please agree with it. And then everybody says, there's no room for agreement and walks away. Yeah, I think something's gone missing in that turn of events there. But yeah, so they're basically, they rule out any possible concession that they might be willing to make. And there were a number of interesting concessions that are compatible with Kosovo thriving as an independent state that we had explored in various reports going back many years. Name a couple of good ideas that well, have... Well, I'll, I'll, I'll give you two, the two that people talk about. The more controversial one was redrawing their border to more closely match the ethnic border. And that is, in fact, quite controversial, but it was the one that they were more interested in, both of them. The previous Kosovo government and the current Serbian government basically taking a few municipalities that are very, very heavily Serb majority, so well over 90, 95% Serb that are adjacent to Serbia and putting them in Serbia and taking a similarly sized municipality and a half about in Serbia that's somewhat less heavily but still quite heavily Albanian majority and putting it into to Kosovo. So that was one idea. And the other idea was the creating some kind of autonomous district for uh, the Serbs within Kosovo where they would have higher degree of autonomous rights than they already have, because they already have some, in fact, quite a few, but to give them more of that. And for various historical reasons, that's an unpopular idea in Kosovo, but I think it's on the merits quite a good one and probably the one that we would, and a lot of other observers would urge on Pristina. Anyway, those are both now a dead letter for the time being. War and Peace, a podcast by the International Crisis Group. You're listening to War and Peace, a podcast of the International Crisis Group, and I'm talking to Marco Prelitz about the Western Balkans. So moving on, Bosnia and Herzegovina also not going as well as one might like. There's talk of the Serbian portion of it, or Republika Srpska, looking for some sort of independence. There's 
a electoral dispute between the ethnic Croats and the Bosniaks. Why are things falling apart in Bosnia and Herzegovina? Yeah, the Serbs are kind of seceding. Bosnia and Herzegovina is kind of falling apart. And I I can explain that. So Bosnia and Herzegovina is sort of mini Yugoslavia, right? It still has this hugely multi-ethnic jigsaw puzzle. That is not a wrong statement, but it's a really controversial statement. I mean it in a non-normative, just in the sense that it's a very multi-ethnic place, but differently structured, right? Well, the main difference is that the Yugoslavia that existed at the point that it fell apart was a federal state. So with six republics and two autonomous provinces that were sort of semi-republics in a way. Bosnia is not that. It has two entities, but it then gets more complicated because one of the entities is itself very multi-ethnic. But one of the reasons why it's controversial is uh, that Yugoslavia (laughs) fell apart in a horrible civil war. So if you say, well, your country is a little Yugoslavia, then people think, oh my God, that means that we're fated to have the same thing. But absolutely, it is the most diverse of the former Yugoslav states. It has a high degree of decentralization. We're now cycling through the 30th anniversaries of the beginning of the war. So there's a lot of remembering and commemorating going on, commemorating for the people that were too young, that weren't even born at the time, but for whom this is still a living political reality, because it absolutely suffuses the public culture there, the awareness that there was a a war. So the early days of the siege of Sarajevo, we're hearing a lot of talk about that. It's been about 26 years since the war ended. And yet, several of the issues that people fought over have not been resolved. And this is something that is kind of on my mind and I was hoping to talk to you about and get your view because one of the favorite ways that people like to end war is through some kind of power sharing where you shoehorn the warring factions into a government so that they're in a government together and you kind of hope for the best. And that often works, actually. And it kind of worked in Bosnia, but it is now ceasing to do so. And it makes me sort of wonder if this happened, if this were to be the way that the war in Ukraine were to end, 27, 26, seven years later, could we be looking at post-war Ukraine then starting to fall apart? But you don't have these groups contesting power in Ukraine on the basis of ethnic and historical backgrounds and identities that you have in Bosnia and Herzegovina. It's a different model. Ukraine is certainly multicultural, but it doesn't divide up that way when it comes to who's fighting or why they're fighting. That's a bit of a myth about Ukraine, that it's about language or that it's about ethnic identity. It's not a myth about Bosnia and Herzegovina. These are the things that divide people. Point taken, absolutely. I realize this is a podcast about the Balkans. I don't want to make it about Ukraine. I'm just really curious. The DNR, LNR populations that have lived under pro-Russian, I guess, or Russian occupation or however, whatever the best way to put it is, is there a sense that there's a kind of hardening political identity there that is... You know, it's really hard to know uh, very specifically because the public opinion polling there has been limited and unreliable for eight years. But the sense one gets from the best of the polls is that the people who have stayed in these territories that were controlled by the Russian-backed de facto governments were frustrated with pretty much everybody. And it wasn't on an ethnic or linguistic, nobody really cares about us, everybody's using us, nobody's planning to support us, they've left us out to dry sort of thing. They know people in government-controlled Ukraine. They went back and forth to government-controlled Ukraine. They knew what it was like. It wasn't that they were afraid somebody was going to take away their right to speak Russian. 
But this does raise another question of how is the war in Ukraine shifting positions, right? You alluded to it being a factor anti-EU sentiments in Serbia. Is this war going to change dynamics in the Western Balkans? I think for sure, yeah. I want to pick up on something that you said, because I think it's a really important point in former Yugoslavia in the Western Balkans. And that is that these political issues exist on two very different levels. There's the elite level of people who are in government. They're the ones that foreign leaders interact with, and we often as crisis group people interact with. And then there's the level of the people at large. And the level of the people at large in many, many issues in many, many places is exactly what you have described just now about Ukraine, this kind of sense of we've just had enough. We don't like or trust anyone. We dislike and mistrust the other people's leaders more than we mistrust and dislike ours, but we don't like ours either. So that is kind of an important, subtle and often overlooked point. But to answer your question, I think it's going to have a huge impact and it's already having a huge impact. And it's not clear to me or I think to anyone how it will work itself out over time. And that really just because we don't know what's going to happen in Ukraine. Yeah. And I mean, it depends on how the war sorts itself out, how the war is going to affect the rest of Europe and the rest of the world. But for now, it's just making people nervous, right? The overwhelming sense that I get is that the leadership in the Western Balkans did not expect the West, so the European Union and, the, and America, to react the way they did. I mean, the Kremlin is kind of a black box in some respects, but maybe it's what the Kremlin expected too, that there would be a much more muted response. So there were some signs that Bosnian Serb leadership was preparing to ratchet up, to accelerate their breakaway attempt in coordination with the Russian invasion of Ukraine on the theory that if the world is shaking in one place, it becomes more easy to shake it in another place at the same time. And what actually happened was absolutely the opposite. They tamped everything way, way, way down because the West imposed these absolutely unprecedented sanctions with lightning speed. And people saw the financial firepower that the U.S. and Europe were willing to bring to bear and thought, we do not want to risk any of that directed against us. It also made Russia look weaker from the Balkan perspective. They have been politically active in the Western Balkans. So there was this idea that with Russian support, you can maybe accomplish some things that the West doesn't want you to do. And now it's looking like mm, that is really a gamble. So right now they are acting like good students. Is this affecting the Croat-Bosniak electoral dispute at all? I mean, kind of this desire of ethnic Croats in Bosnia to that they be able to elect their own representatives. Has that been affected by the war or not? Not really. And that's sort of interesting. The Serbs responded more, actually. So they're still trying to extricate themselves from the authority of Sarajevo, but they're doing it more carefully and slowly. The Croat-Bosniak argument is incredibly bitter, and there's real hate being expressed at the political level, the level of the political elite. It's not really clear that this trickles down to the people at large, but at the level of the politicians, they really don't like each other. And there's some quite poisonous things that are being said back and forth. And they have not stopped. In fact, in some ways, it's gotten crazier. The president of Croatia has been threatening to veto the accession to NATO of Finland and Sweden if the Croat-Bosniak thing and the election dispute isn't solved first, which is kind of an eyebrow-raising, to say the least, position to be taking. 
That is not the position of the rest of the Croatian government. They have a cohabitation between two different parties. So they're still fighting. They're still arguing about that. And what about all this talk in Brussels and in various European capitals about a fast track for EU accession for Ukraine? I mean, how does that feel if you are a country that has been waiting for decades for EU membership after having survived your own really horrible war to watch the EU try to come up with clever ideas to get another country rapidly on the path despite the fact that it's still in the middle of a war? Oh, it feels horrible. I mean, look, Bosnia experienced legally confirmed genocide, right? International Tribunal for former Yugoslavia, several entirely consistent judgments that there was genocide in Bosnia-Herzegovina, which was then affirmed in its own way by the International Court of Justice. But presumably genocide is not a requirement for EU membership, though arguably European history is chock full of uh, attempted genocides. They were victims of this horrible thing, and they're not even a candidate yet. And there's talk of, I don't know how serious this is, of Ukraine becoming a candidate. Well, I don't think anyone knows how serious it is yet. These are all kind of ideas. And I think they are getting floated in part because of what Russia is doing to Ukraine. And I imagine kind of having lived through your own horror, you're thinking, wait, if all you have to do is be victimized by a nasty, oppressive neighbor, we've done that. Yeah. And, you know, it wasn't offered at the time when this was happening and it wasn't offered immediately after. And it's still not being offered today because there's lots of these little European rules. And one of the things that people in the Western Balkans are always hearing, and this is everyone, so leadership and people as a whole, is EU is all about rules. And if the EU then turns around and says, oh, just come on in, we'll we'll waive the rules for you. They're not going to do that realistically. But if they're talking about it, it is very, yeah, it's infuriating. People in Bosnia do feel a lot of sympathy and empathy with what the Ukrainians are suffering, having lived through it themselves. It's triggering people, literally. You know, people are having flashbacks. But yeah, it's a weird moment, I guess, with respect to the EU. Marco, thank you so much for joining me here. I feel like this was brief, but actually offers a pretty good sense of what's going on. Thanks for having me. It's been a pleasure. It's always great to talk. For those who want an even deeper sense of what's going on, keep an eye out for our new report, which should be out shortly. While you wait for the report, or if you want even more, there is a good bit of uh, crisis group work on the Balkans, much of it penned by Marco, on our website, www.crisisgroup.org. You can also follow Marco on Twitter. He's at M-P-R-E-L-E-C. And while you're on Twitter, don't forget, if you don't already, to follow Crisis Group, at Crisis Group, and follow me. I'm at Olia Olaker. Crisis Group's also on Facebook and Instagram, again, at Crisis Group. And if you are enjoying this podcast, but have ideas for topics or guests, or if you think you'd enjoy this podcast more if we followed your ideas for topics or guests, give us a shout out to that effect on Twitter or wherever you and we all are online. And you can email us to podcasts at crisisgroup.org. And if you are on iTunes or Spotify, do leave us a rating and a review. We like those. We read those. It's something I do when I'm at an airport with Wi-Fi and a few minutes to kill. I try to see if there have been new ratings or reviews. So make me happy and add some. War and Peace is a partner in a network of podcasts about Europe. Uh, It's called Europod and the others are also pretty cool. So check them out. 
Big thanks to our producer, Bull Media, and to Finn Johnson and Alex Vygorski, who make sure that I don't forget to say things when I uh, introduce and close out the podcast and that I know what I'm talking about in the middle as well. But the biggest thanks, as always, are to you, our listeners. I am very much looking forward to chatting with you again in a couple of weeks. Until then, goodbye. War and Peace, a podcast by the International Crisis Group.